Well, good evening once again. We are thankful for you being here with us. Our lesson tonight is we've been looking at the book of Zechariah. Uh, this is our third lesson. Uh, we'll be focusing tonight primarily on chapters uh, three and four. And I want to show the encouragement that we can find from uh, these chapters. They are uh, several uh, visions and figure, figures, uh, figurative things to, to consider here as we look at chapters uh, three and four. And I've titled this lesson because of what we'll be focusing on, not just because of what's mentioned here, because there's more mentioned in the branch and the lampstand, but those are the two things we'll be focusing uh, most on this evening. And as we look at Zechariah chapter three and four, not unlike other minor prophets, there's still again the problem of sin that is to be dealt with. But in Zechariah's uh, instance here in, in chapter 3, uh, we find in chapter 3 a change, and we find we're, we're looking here a, a what I call, or I've labeled here, a cleansing that's going to begin. We find here first a cleansing and then the branch that is mentioned later in chapter 3. And we look at Zechariah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He says here, Joshua, then he shall meet Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand, oppose, uh, right hand op to oppose him. Now Joshua is thought by many to be representing uh, not himself, for instance, but really the entire priesthood, as he was a high priest, as he mentions there in verse 1, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And so he is meant really to be taken as representing the priesthood and representing the people uh, before God. And we find there also in verse 1, he says, And Satan, standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now Satan's charge is against really all the priesthood, again represented by Joshua, and the nation. And we, as we find here in verse 2 and following, the Bible says, And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was, was clothed with filthy garments, was standing before the angel. Now Satan is pictured here as trying to prevent the priesthood, represented again by Joshua, and thus the nation from being accepted by God because of their sin. If you notice here in verse uh, 3, He's pointed out here that Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. Now, garments many times, and we find this also uh, being used in the book of Revelation, when it talks about those who have their garments washed in the blood of the Lamb. Well, it wasn't literal garments. It was really their lives, what he's talking about. They were changed because they had been, they had been obedient to the gospel. They were baptized as they were washed in the blood of the Lamb. We talk about how we would come in contact with the blood of Christ at baptism. And so when they are washed in the blood of the Lamb, that happens at baptism. And the Revelation is a reference that clothing, the garments is a reference to their lives. And here in chapter 3 of Zechariah, it's the same idea. The, the garments is represented as their lives. But the filthiness is representing sin, meaning there is sin that has to be taken care of. There is sin that has to be removed. Joshua, or the priesthood, was clothed with filthy garments, was standing before the angel. And so there was sin within the priesthood, within the people, that had to be removed. And if you continue to read here in verse 4, he says, And he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. 
Take away what? Take away the sin. This is showing God God's forgiveness of those sins. These these robes also show that sins have been forgiven, and are now and they are now clothed with righteousness. He says there in verse four. He says, "See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes." Do you remember? We think about I think about the parable of the prodigal son and how when the son comes back, what's one of the first things his father says to says to his servants about the son? To find what? To put new robes on him, put new sandals on his feet and a ring on his hand, showing and indicating a forgiveness and a change in the son, right? And we find that same idea here in verses four and five. He, the, the filthy garments are removed. The sin is removed. He says, see, I've removed your iniquity there in verse 4, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Their lives have changed. Look at verse 5. So they, and I said, said and I said, let them put a, a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Now again, these new robes show sins have been forgiven, and are now, they're now clothed with righteousness. And no doubt we find there that the angel of the Lord sitting by, who is, again, just a messenger of the Lord. That's what the angel means. Angel means, just means messenger. He stood nearby, which was seen to indicate God's approval of their filthy garments being removed, their iniquity being removed, and they're now, again, being pleasing in the sight of God. And so we have this image of forgiveness and cleansing in those first five verses. Which is interesting, especially if you consider the next following verses you find what's referenced as the branch and the New King James. I'm not certain how it's, how it's represented in all translations, but the word branch is in all caps because it's talking about a person, not a literal branch of a tree. It's talking about an actual person. As we'll go through, we're going to find out this branch is representing the coming Messiah, Christ. Now, in verses 1 through 5, again, this cleansing taking place, the, the filthy garments being removed, the sin being removed, been clothed with righteousness, clothed uh, with uh, indicating, indicating their change in, in, them, in, in their life and their sin being removed. Again, a clean turban been put on. And then the angel of the Lord sitting nearby, the messenger of God sitting nearby, which would seem to indicate God's approval of, these, of, of what's taking place here. And so you think about, though, it's interesting that chapter 3 begins the idea of Satan sitting nearby wanting to oppose God's people. Oppose the priesthood, because when you oppose the priesthood, especially when you think about Old Testament times, you're going to oppose God's people. And so, think about this today, does God, or excuse me, rather, does Satan still oppose God's people today? Well, the answer has to be yes, right? I mean, very clearly, if you look at the world around us, which is filled with those who are in, he wants to live in direct contradiction to God's, to God's word and oppose those who want to do that which is right. And Satan many times uses those individuals to bring affliction and hardship upon us. Most definitely God, or most definitely rather Satan, is still opposed to us today and always will be. But we move on to verse 6. We find an interesting um, Vision that comes here as as we look at verse six, we find the branch is now going to be uh, discussed. In verses six and seven, we find uh, what I call a charge to the faith, a charge to be faithful to God, a charge would apply through no doubt the priesthood who had been cleansed, as that's being referenced there in the first five verses. 
you look at verses 6 and 7, it says, And the angel of the Lord, that is, again, a messenger of the Lord, admonished Joshua, again, the whole priesthood, right? Saying, Thus is the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among, among these who stand here. And so this is a charge to be faithful. What will happen, they'll be able to execute their office of it being a priest, Right? Isn't it amazing how many times, at least that first phrase of verse 7 is repeated throughout the Bible? If you'll walk in my ways, how many times do you find that from Genesis to Revelation? Over and over and over again. Which when I think about, about how important that is, it tells us that our blessings from God, our salvation is conditional upon our obedience to God. I have a book in my office, and I'm sure others do have similar ones as well, asking the question, is salvation conditional? According to the Bible, the answer is most definitely yes. There are always conditions to being faithful to having the blessings of God, to having heaven as your home. The condition is you get to go to heaven so long as you meet the condition of faithfulness to God. And we find that same idea here with, with these priests. They will be able to do all these things, as mentioned in the latter part of verse 7, if, in the first part of verse 7, they will, what? Walk in his ways and keep his commands. Next, let's notice in verse 8, he says here, the branch, verse 8 says, Hero Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I'm bringing forth my servant, the branch, singular. A singular Person in verse 8. The branch is introduced as a reference to the coming Messiah. Now you can find this same idea in Isaiah 4, verse 2. You find it in Jeremiah 23, 5, Jeremiah 33, 15. But I want us to look at one section here as we think about this verse concerning the servant, the branch. Again, this is God speaking. He says that he's going to bring forth my servant, the branch, it is his servant. It is a singular servant in verse 8. Notice Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Uh, I thought I'd put that on here. Well, let's open this back up in our Bibles, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, and looking at verses 1 through 10. I believe that's, I think I just put it in the wrong spot. Yeah, here it is. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with, an, with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with, with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall lay the wicked, he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the, and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. 
Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious." Now, I want to focus not on the entire section here, but just those first few verses here. Notice the description is used to reference the branch. First, he mentions him how he will come forth, uh, there shall come forth a rock in the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall come out of his roots. Again, referencing the lineage of Christ, where he's coming from. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes or decide by the hearing of his ears. Going on, he's talking about how he's going to judge with, verse 4, but with righteousness. Doesn't Christ tell us the same thing? That we should judge with righteous judgment, not judge according to your, by our eyes. Right? Because everybody knows, judge not lest you be judged. But very few understand the idea of judging with righteous judgment. In verse 4 of, of Isaiah chapter 11 here, mentions that's exactly what the branch Christ is going to do when he comes. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek. I mean, he's going to judge everyone fairly and equally. And basically, as we see going through there, he will bring peace to those who follow him. Now, we're going to back up here because I know we got a little bit out of line because of where I placed that. But the branch is referenced there clearly in Isaiah chapter 11, 1 through 10. He would be, be a descendant of David and a servant of Jehovah. And in him, the priesthood and the kingship uh, through uh, Zerubbabel would be combined and made complete, as you find it there also in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 23. Well, let's also notice next verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the, upon the, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the, the iniquity of that land in one day. It seems that a stone is the kingdom of God. At this time, it was not it was was a was a rough rough unhewn stone, but it was to be complete with the engraving of Jehovah, as he mentions there in verse nine. I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now you think for a second, how can God remove the iniquity of that land, meaning basically all the world, in one day? What singular event happened on one single day that changed the course of all mankind? Christ's death on the cross. When Christ laid down his life on the cross shed his blood for mankind, and one day he made it possible for the sins of all mankind to be forgiven in that one day. I'll remove the iniquity of that land in one day. The seven eyes focused on the stone seem to represent the complete and fullness of God's watchful care over his people and his promise that he would bring forth a kingdom which would never be destroyed, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, which would endure forever, Daniel 7, verse 14, in spite of all those who would come against it and their evil powers they would use to do so, as we find in Daniel chapter 7. Now this promise, as we mentioned already, is verified by the promise, I'll remove the iniquity of that land in one day, a reference to Christ's death on the cross. 
Let's also notice next verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. The redeemed will invite their neighbors to share with them and their blessings of being a part of the kingdom of God. When a person is baptized, the person has obeyed the gospel, but they oftentimes want to talk to others about it. You know, many times, not always, but many times, those who have who are babes in Christ have just obeyed the gospel. They're very excited. They're glad. They're relieved because their sins have been forgiven. They're now part of the body of Christ. One of the first things they often want to do is what? Tell others about it, right? Talk to people about it. And in verse 10, that's an idea we have here. Everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree to do what? To tell about the blessings of being a faithful servant of God. Uh, this was the assurance given to those discouraged and, and, and struggling during the time uh, of Zechariah and through the cleansing of the priesthood and declaration uh, of the branch who would come, that is, Christ is going to come, and through the promise of the kingdom over which he watched. These are things that should be encouraging for Zechariah, isn't it? The priesthood is going to be cleansed. There was a coming, the Messiah was coming, as we know from Matthew and through the gospel accounts, and numerous other prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. Now let's look at chapter 4. Let me skip through this because I know we looked at this already. But chapter 4, you have what I've called here the lampstand and the anointed ones. The lampstand and anointed ones. Now in verses 1 through 5, you have simply the vision that is given. Because it's kind of this is kind of done in a similar fashion to the parables are sometimes, where the parable is given and then later the parable is explained. We look at verses 1 through 5. We had a vision of the lampstand with the seven lamps. Uh, now the angel who talked with me came back and awakened me as a man who was awakened out of his sleep. There's a lot of different things that are said about that, about him being asleep. It would seem, logically so, you know, people can, can people get mentally exhausted and need to take a nap and rest? Yes. Sunday afternoon naps, why don't we do that? Because many times, many of us teach classes. We prepare for those things all week. What do we do afterwards when we need to rest? Well, Zachariah, he's seen numerous visions already, right? But as we mentioned already uh, previously, when we started this section, that Zachariah's visions that he sees all take place in one single night. Now, this is another set of visions that's taking place. And the angel, the messenger of God here, wakens, wakes him up there in verse 2 says, and he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. What do lampstands need? They need oil. What do olive trees provide? They provide oil, don't they? Now, we're going to look more at that later, but that's interesting that you have that lampstand with those seven uh, lamps, and then you have beside it two olive trees beside it there. Looking at verse 4. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And you almost have the element of surprise that Zechariah doesn't know what these things represent. Now, the disciples many times, or at least a few times during the parables, they also asked the Lord, explain to us, you know, the parable of the sower, the dragon, whatever it may be, uh, and the Lord would do so. 
And this is done in a similar way here when he asks, what do these things mean? Now, looking at verse 6 through verse 10, you have the explanation of the vision. In verse 6, uh, he says here, So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but, my, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So what is about to take place, what he's about to talk about, is going to be accomplished by the will and the power of God. It's not through man's might, not through man's power, but it's by the Lord these things are going to be accomplished. And so that's what we find here in verse 6 that he's referencing. Uh, the lampstands, as I mentioned before, supports uh, the lamps. The Spirit of Jehovah provides the light. And it's by his divine power that man accomplished the purpose of the Almighty. And that, as we know, what's going to include, as we're going to go through this, include the rebuilding of the temple. Looking at verse 7, Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall, you shall become a plain. You shall bring forth a capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, you think about this for a second. He asks, Who are you, O great mountain? Now, and he says, Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. So he's going to turn some mountain into a plain, which means he's going to bring it low. He's going to make it of no consequence. Do you remember when... Speaking of John the Baptist coming, how the Lord said he would make the, you know, the hills flat, I'm paraphrasing, the, 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 curvy, you know, the, the, the curb straight, his path would be straight, the, the mountains would be brought, brought low, that did there being his path would be made easy. We find that same idea here in verse 7. Whatever troubles representing by the mountain are going to be brought low, become a plain, they can easily be traveled right across. Telling us that God was going to make it easy for Zerubbabel to go and cross over, uh, over across that difficult, whatever difficulty it may be, whether it be opposition or whatever it may be, they were going to be able to overcome that. That mountain will become like a plain, he says there in verse 7. And he, and he shall bring forth a capstone with, with shouts of grace, grace to it there in verse 7. Uh, the, the capstone or the top stone is the finishing stone, the final stone that would make the temple complete. It's not the cornerstone, but it's the final stone. The cornerstone is what everything else was built around. The capstone or the finishing stone was the final one that was laid. There is a difference there. Christ, as we know, especially in the New Testament, he is mentioned as that cornerstone where everything is built upon. That's not what's being referenced here in verse 7. It's the final stone, the capstone or the top stone. Looking at verse 8, uh, 8 and 9 here. Uh, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, So the message was delivered, verse 8, from the angel, angel of Jehovah, and he's speaking for God, again, continuing to do so in verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands also shall finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So the completed temple by uh, Zerubbabel, by the power of God, would be be assurance that Jehovah had sent His angel to him, or to them rather, that He was sent uh, to speak to them on behalf of God. Looking at verse ten, for who has despised a day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, but they are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. There in verse ten. The rebuilding of the temple seemed a small thing before, but when God becomes involved, because as we saw before, who was it that was going to cause these things to be made complete? 
It wasn't by the mighty hand of man, but the power of man, but it was by the Spirit and the will of God that the, the temple would be finished and be completed. So the rebuilding of the temple once seemed small, but now that God is involved, he says, who can despise, uh, who has despised the day of small things? I mean, the rebuilding the temple is not a small thing. For these suddenly rejoice to see the plumb line, the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord. That is, when the Lord sees all that's going on, it brings him, he has reason to rejoice at what's taking place. He says, which scan to and fro throughout all the earth, or throughout the whole earth. Uh, the plumb line in his hand, he plumbs the top stone in place. The building is complete. The plumb line meaning it was completely level and it was finished. That was the last thing you put in was that capstone or that finishing stone. And again, the seven eyes here that's mentioned in verse 10 represent the perfection of God's watch over his purpose and his plan being carried out. Now notice these final four verses here. Now in verse 11 through 13, we find that what, what do these things mean is going to be asked concerning the olive tree and the branches. And so 11 through 14, we find that God would accomplish his purpose through the anointed ones that are mentioned in the very final verse of chapter 4. Look at verse 11 through 13. <clears throat> he asked the questions here. They answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees? At the right of the lampstand and at its left. And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the, gold, the golden oil drains? The answer and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Again, the idea of surprise, he doesn't know what they represent. Now notice verse, uh, verse 14. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stem aside the Lord, uh, who stem aside the Lord of the whole earth. Now, under the old law, there were two different offices held by men who were anointed, and thereby they were set apart, they were, they were set apart as holy to the Lord. Uh, specifically appointed to serve his purpose. One was a high priest, uh, Exodus 30, verse 30, Leviticus 8, 30. Uh, also, you have the king, being the second anointed one, 1 Samuel 10, 1, and 2 Kings 9, verses 1 through 6. These, these two anointed ones are described as they who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth, uh, perhaps indicating they are to do his, his bidding, to carry out his will, being they are ready, at, they are sending at the ready to do whatever God asks of them, right? These two seem to be a reference to Joshua, the high priest, and of Zerubbabel, the governor, and they are implied here by the anointed ones. The two offices would ultimately be united in the Messiah, uh, the priest, uh, the priest to come, uh, the priest who would, the priest and king to come. Uh, more is said about this as we look later uh, down the road in Joshua, in, excuse me, not in Joshua, but in Zechariah 6, uh, more is said about this as well. And so those two anointed ones representing, seem to represent Joshua and Zerubbabel, the high priest and then the governor. Now, as you think about this, what are some lessons for us today? I know we're going a little bit over time, but lessons for us today, God's will will be done. The temple was going to be rebuilt. That was the focus in chapter three of the scene and chapter four with the plumb line that was, you know, on the capstone there on the finishing stone. God's will is always done regardless of the attitudes of men. Remember in Zechariah uh, four and verse 10, there are those who despise the day of, as if it was the day of small things there in verse 10. But God's word can uh, think about this. We must remember the, the words found in Isaiah 
that God's word concerning anything is always carried out. In Isaiah 55 and verse 11, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, that shall not return to me void, but shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God had said his temple was going to be rebuilt, and what's going to happen? It's going to be rebuilt. God's will will be done is one of the things we want to learn from this. And second, the Messiah, the branch for our sake today, did come. He, had, he came. The Messiah, the branch, came. We find the branch in Zechariah's time was coming. And he would bring people to himself, and those who came would be saved by their obedience. And the message of the Old Testament was he is coming. Today we know he came and is coming back to bring the faithful to bring the faithful with him. God's will is going to be done, and we know that the branch did in fact come, and he is coming again, which tells us that God keeps his word, doesn't he? The prophecies concerning those things have always come true, which tells us also that God's word is worthy to be trusted. <coughs> We too, like Zechariah, can find ourselves discouraged. And God was encouraging Zechariah by telling him by telling him that all obstacles would be removed. He had just he just had to keep working. Remember the mountain that would become a plain, the reference to those obstacles being removed. The same goes for us today. Our troubles will not last forever. We just we just remain faithful to God and we keep working. And everything, God will deal with all those things through the process of time or according to his will. Whatever he deems uh, necessary, God will carry us through whatever may come our way. Whatever mountain may rise up against us in our path, we can overcome it if we will remain faithful to God and keep working for him. This evening, as you think about these things, you think about Zechariah, we may think, well, what is the lampstand and the branch and all those things have to do with me? It has to do with us because God said those things would come to pass, that those, the will and purpose of those things would be carried out, and they were. It means a lot to us because God told Zechariah that he'd make every difficulty like a plain, turn every mountain into a flat land for him to just to walk across. You know, we think about the troubles we face today, Whatever they may be, they can be difficult, they can be intimidating. But with God, whatever mountain may stand before us, they will seem as if they're nothing, so long as we keep God as the one whom we are loyal to, the one whom we follow each and every day, we can overcome whatever may come, come our way. This evening, as you think about these things, think about these words from Zechariah, and we can help you or encourage you in any way. If you have any need, we'd be glad to assist you. That's good. We stand and sing the song that's been selected.